Hello and welcome. This is Home Life for Extraordinary Impact. I'm your host, Matt Barrios. I'm a husband, dad, researcher, and writer and coach, and I am on this podcast and through my company, Home Life Design Lab, searching for people's, uh, you know, special insights, unique insights about people's homes by interviewing people all around the world, experts, everyday folks, collecting what do they do, how do they live in their homes that helps set them up for personal growth, relational connection, and making their greatest impact in the world. So today, that's what we're up to. I hope you're uh, ready to have an exciting interview with my very special guest, Martin. And Martin is a coach, and he is known as the architect of the Warrior's Life Code. And boy, oh boy, there's so much I want to unpack, even in that phrase, Martin. So uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, you know, one of my first questions that I love to start with uh, when I ask guests to come on is what are some of the things that you do at home that help you really show up well to to your work, to your life? What, what are the sort of the things that you like to do at home that help you show up? Well, first thing is, Matt, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. And that's an easy question for me. And it, it's come up over the last 10, 12 years that this has become my passion and it happens in my home. I love to cook. I love it. So my, one of my favorite rooms in the house is my kitchen. That is so good. And if you had like a, you're hosting a dinner party, let's say, and you're pulling out your show stopping recipe, the thing that you're like, okay, I can't wait to knock people's socks off with this, this meal. What are you going to make for them? Okay, that's a good question. But you know what happened over the last six months? I started doing YouTube videos with coaching and cooking. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not oh, kidding. Cool. <laughs> In my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun. But, you know, so one of the first things I made is a dish that I've loved since a child. It's called chicken and spaghetti. And it's just that. Chicken <laughs> and spaghetti. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds, sounds delicious. So, you know, whenever I'm a, uh, out in New York, where you are, I might pop over for some chicken and spaghetti if you'd be so great. You better. <laughs> you better. <laughs> awesome. And when I have you to our place in San Francisco, um, I'll make you a delicious pot roast. So, uh, Fantastic. Great. Um, so uh, I already mentioned it. I know that you're based in New York, but um, I know people tend, tend to uh, find a sense of home in places, many places around the world, maybe because they live there, maybe because they visit. So what are the places that you have uh, felt home, uh, felt like our home? So for me, uh, I, I've always got, most of my life I lived in, in Brooklyn, New York. For about 20 years, I lived down by the Jersey Shore, which was also an extension of, of where I live here in Brooklyn. Uh, I, grew, I grew up in a very uh, modern Orthodox uh, uh, Jewish community, Sephardic Jewish community, very close-knit. And most people don't get married and move away. They get married within the community and stay here. So home for me is Brooklyn, this community, being part of it. And when I moved to New Jersey, the reason I moved there was because in the summertime, which is on our recording here in June, we go to New Jersey for the summer uh, as a summer resort. The whole community moves from New York, 80% of it, from New York to New Jersey for the summer. <laughs> and after a while, some people loved living in New Jersey so much that they set up living there all year round. And I did that for about 20 years. Yeah. Gosh, wow. Uh, I mean, 
I love the combination of Brooklyn and, and New Jersey, uh, the shore over there. Um, and I'm yeah. very interested to hear more about this uh, Orthodox Sephardic Jewish community that you've belonged to, um, because I know like relationships, community connection, that does so much to help people have a sense of belonging and all of that. Would you tell me more about what it was like to grow up in that environment and uh, how it's impacted? Absolutely. You? you know, as much as people say, oh, my God, this touched you. They feel like they're in a fishbowl, like everybody's watching them. The, the positives way outweigh the negatives uh, of being like that fishbowl thing and all that. But I, my, my parents, my mother's from Syria. My father's from Egypt. Okay. So it's this Middle Eastern, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, Israel. Those are the people that make up, you know, the community here wow. for the most part. And, and, you know, many of them go back generationally. You know, when people hear how big my mother's family is and how big my father's family is, how many first cousins I have, and how many of them still live within a couple of miles of me, they're, they're blown away. Yeah. But what comes with that is we all know each other. We go to the similar synagogues, you know. Well, oh, where do you live? Oh, you go to this synagogue. Oh, okay. And that's the rabbi of that synagogue. Oh, what school did you go to? Oh, did you go to school with that person? So they get to know you even better. Oh, who's your mother? Who's your father? That's yeah. always a first question that I was asked. And I find myself asking that to my kids and my stepkids. Friends, who's your parents? And because my wife is a little younger than me, I go, who's your grandparents? <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> uh, gosh, wow. Uh, that sounds like such a tight-knit community. I mean, and I bet that would be so necessary for especially folks who are immigrants from a different country and like trying to make home in a new place and you get to, uh, you know, worship together, be connected to one another, all of that. Like I could see right. the value of that. And even that, right. You know, I mean, would you say yeah, that a perfect hard? example is, yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. So this past Saturday, my grandson who's eight years old was reading from the Torah for the first time, which you need to practice. Cause you walk up to the Torah that it's, it's in Hebrew with and it's you you have to know the tune and everything that goes with it so he practiced for a while uh, excuse me and my son lives about a mile or so away a little bit more than a mile so i had to ride my bike there to get there yeah uh to be there and i walked in and my son wasn't there yet and about seven or eight guys came out Martin, great to see you oh my we love having your son here i'm so excited you came today it was just such a i felt like i was in my own home my own wow. synagogue around the corner from me yeah I could see that. Wow. I love that. Like, even though it's not your usual place, the, the web of connection is so strong. Uh, right. That's so One great. of the first guys to, to, to greet me was my friend from kindergarten. <laughs> wow. You know, because I know like a lot of people move around a lot, right, in, in their lives. But I feel like one thing that I'm hearing in your experience, as much as you, you know, lived predominantly in these two places, right? Like, there's such a depth and history of relational connection that comes from really having roots down in a community. Uh, you know, and I actually honestly think like that's a thing that's uh, maybe missing from a lot of people's experiences. Have you found that as you talk to people, like comparing even your like deep, deep Brooklyn, deep uh, Jersey Shore experience versus what you've right. seen with other more... Uh, kind of visiting New Yorkers who may be there for a while or not? 
Yeah, absolutely. When they get to learn the depth of the relationships, the, the things that go on in our community, they marvel at it and they go, I wish I had that. And I wish for them that they did too. You know, the good and the, and the happy times and the sad times. Yeah. For example, uh, my friend's mother passed away last week. Okay. And in the Jewish community, we have this, the, the, the way it works is uh, someone passes away, the immediate family mourn for a week and they stay home and they get, they take visitors all week. And I call it, it's almost like a, this is your life. And people that you haven't seen for years come to visit you, to honor you, to honor the person that passed away and to say, we have these connections, all these life, this life, and we're together in, uh, uh, for you in these times of, of sadness, just as we are when you get somebody, when somebody gets married. Yeah. Yeah. But it's even more cellular on a one to one basis at, at, on that week. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it seems so necessary to navigate grief. Uh, it really takes mm. like the tenderness of the one on one and all of right. that. And wow, that's beautiful. Incredible tradition. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that that does like come out of the home to, you know, to bring back to my, you know, research interests in all of this, right? Like, uh, the, the role, these kinds of communal rituals of grieving around death that are so part of your heritage, your community that, uh, you know, what, what do you think like the role of the home is in oh. something like that? So it's so important because as you were saying it, I, I recognized even on a deeper level, it's, it's almost as if God is saying you do it in the home that the person lived in because their soul is still kind of there. Interesting. Their soul is built into the home that they built. And what they have there is, is, is woven into the fabric of the, of the house yeah, of everything yeah. that goes on. So you're honoring that person and God is saying that soul is there in spirit watching and, and, and appreciating the love that's coming as a result of what happened. It's so beautiful. And I, I, it makes a lot of sense to me because I know even our apartment where we've lived for two years, right? Um, it hasn't been a long time, but these walls carry stories. It almost feels, you know, like there's a sense of, you know, from the pictures on the wall to uh, like why we chose to buy that rocking chair when the baby arrived versus another rocking chair. Like, it's just like right. all of these little moments that add that, you know, there's a collection of stories in every object, every space. Um, and, you know, when, when you now are in that person's space and they are no longer there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah to go you feel their energy yeah. at many of the places when you look around you see the house you see the home and and there's a difference between a house and a home you know people could live in a house but if they're not comfortable there it's not their home yeah. and when you look around these homes and you see the pictures on the walls of the history of these families you get to appreciate them even more and then you hear stories people will walk in and say you know you might not have known this about your father but he used to donate money to this thing and that thing anonymously. Yeah. Like, really? What do you, somebody told me a story about my dad. My dad's gone for over 20 years. He said, my father was one of his best friends back in Egypt. 
And my father came when he was young in his 20s. Okay. And this was now 20 years later. He was in his mid 40s and his friend came to America and was struggling. His wife wasn't well. His children were well. And my father said to him, let's go out for lunch. And they went for lunch. And my father said to him, Eli, there's a suitcase under my, under, there's a briefcase under the table. I'm going to the bathroom. Take whatever you want. And he opened it up and there was money in there. Wow. Wow. I get emotional when I think about it. Yeah. So this man calls me up during the week. He goes, I'm sorry I can't be there. We have eulogies, not just at the funeral. We do another one during the week. He says, you must tell the story about your father being there for me at my low point. And that guy went on to become a billionaire. Wow. Wow. When I think about that, I, it is such a clear picture of how much we need each other and how much we need people who believe in us, even at our lowest moments, you know, and right. Right. when things aren't working and we have nothing to give in return, right? Like, right. that's pretty And amazing. my father understood, you know, the humility factor. Instead of saying, how much do you need? Just take it and making that person feel uncomfortable. He said, I'm going to the bathroom. Take whatever you want. I don't care. Wow. That's amazing. Gosh, what a story. I, I'm inspired like uh, to be able to do something like that for somebody. How incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, we, so we, we've covered some interesting topics already in, in this interview, and it has to do uh, even like community and uh, out of immigrants experience and religion and uh, spirituality <laughs> and, and the soul and the soul of the home and uh, you know all of that and generosity. Uh, so, Gosh, I, I mean, there's so much to say, but I, I know that you're a coach and, um, and, and a writer. Uh, and yeah. I'm interested if you see any connections between, you know, your home, how you live in your home and your line of work. Uh, what do you see? Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I, for me, you know, I went through the ups and downs of life for over for 50, the first 50 years of my life, the roller coaster of emotion. I went through the 2008 financial crash that happened in the world, and I was a victim of it as just as much as or more than many, many people out there. Yeah. I was wiped out, and I need to recreate myself as a result of that. And uh, a lot of that had to do with what was going on. You know, how, how I even got there was I was working on a project to build a multi-million dollar health club and tennis center in New Jersey with my wife. And it took us five years to get all the approvals, everything in place that you need along the way. And we were millions of dollars into it. My money and investors' money from people I know in my community and family. Yeah. Okay? And then we finally got all the approvals. It was in 2008. It was the summer of 2008. And I go to the bank. I'm like, okay, great. I'm ready to start building now. And they're like, well, we're not lending. You know, 2006 or seven, going into the bank was like going to Costco. Yeah. Yeah, they would yeah. hand you samples. Bulk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the lady on the end of the of the thing saying, taste this. Here, have have a hundred. Oh my you know? gosh. Yeah. But this was 2008. Yeah. And I go in and they're like, Yeah, we're not lending right now. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I've got over three million into this. And then a month later, Bernie Madoff, the subprime loans, and the whole world falls apart. Wow. And I owed money. 
And my family reached out to the people in my community and they said, listen, we understand you invested. We understand he owes you money. Let's come up with a plan that works for everybody and take some time and you'll get your money. Yeah. And the one, I have to say, the ones from the community said yes. There was one or two individuals who said, no, I want all my money right now. They ended up getting nothing because all they got was a judgment against me. Oh, uh, wow. Because I didn't have the money. Yeah. Right? But that's the sense of home, the sense of community. They said, okay, we get it. And I was able to pay them all back over time. Hmm. So then what happened was, now it's 2008, 2009, I'm coming out from out of this. And I decided, okay, I got to put my life back together again. What do I want to do now? I'm going to reinvent myself, not be a businessman, not be an entrepreneur. So I want to become a life coach because I was always involved in community. That's thanks to my parents. They were community-oriented people, getting involved in the organizations. Me too. I was the founder and first president of the synagogue of Eatontown. And on Saturday mornings, I'd run around, guys, we need 10 guys. We need 10 men. Now there's over 400 families there. Wow. You know, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, so it, I'm, gonna, uh, it's, I'm figuring out what I want to do. I said, oh, I'm, I've always been involved in helping people figure out how to become better. I mean, become a life coach because that's part of being a leader in a community organization is showing how they have potential. Yes. So I said, okay, I'll become a life coach. And about two months before coaching training started, my wife said, on our 24th wedding anniversary, I'm done. I want a divorce. I'm like, oh man, why does things keep happening to me? And then I decided I'm going to go through with it anyway. And I realized things don't happen to you. They happen through you. So my worry, concern, uh, uh, everything, my emotions, everything that I was for the first 50 years had come to play and I needed to change that and have it come through me in a different way. And life coaching changed, becoming a life coach changed my life. And now I go out and try to help people change their life. That's amazing. Yeah, it seems so much born out of uh, many things, hardship, struggle, financially, divorce, and also like this beautiful heritage that you have in your parents being so community oriented people and like that groundwork laid for so long, right? Of uh, yep. I'm, I'm a mad about my community. What's a new way that I can do that? Um, I mean, that's, that's amazing. So, um, with, with regard then to, you know, your home as it is now, uh, what, what kinds of things, even daily rituals, weekly rituals, what are the things that you do at home that help you show up best as a coach for people? Okay. That's interesting. So it's interesting when you were talking about home in the beginning of the, of the segment of the podcast, and you were talking about how you bring it into your, what you do on your podcast. I remembered that I got married about five years ago. Thank God. I went through all the ups and downs. I figured myself out and I found a woman and I live in her home with her three children. Also, she's part of the community. As a matter of fact, when I was into one, I, I got a call from a woman who was my matchmaker. <laughs> okay. I'm like, what is this? Fit yeah. on the roof? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And she calls me up and she was my matchmaker for a few years. And she calls me up. She goes, I found this young, this woman. You've got to go out with her. I'm like, well, tell me about her. I know, I know people in the community tell me. So she's telling me, I go, I have no idea who this woman is. 
Wow. She goes, well, you know Ralph and Cookie? I said, yeah, Ralph is friends with my sister, Linda. Cookie's friends with my sister, Nancy. He's about 10 years older. She's six, seven years older than me. I said, yeah, I know them. It's their daughter. I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How old is she? <laughs> they go, oh, she, she's 15 years younger than you. I'm like, well, if she wants to go out with me, all right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And we've, we've been married for five years. Wow. Okay. So why am I telling you this story? Yeah. And how does it fit from home? So we move into her house and her kitchen is 40 years old, 50 years old, no more, over 50 years old. It's solid, but it's, you know, yeah, it's outdated, it's always, yeah. outdated and, and, and hard to work in and not the best laid out. So two years into it, two years into our marriage, we decide, okay, we're going to fix the kitchen. And we start fixing the kitchen in the beginning of March, 2020. All right. Yeah. And what happened at the beginning of March 2020? The pandemic. Yeah. The pandemic happened. All of a sudden, we knocked out the kitchen. All we have left in the kitchen is a sink, an oven, and the refrigerator is in the den. <laughs> and these guys are not showing up for work. Oh my gosh. I'm like, David, you gotta come. You gotta get here. Ben. We need the we we need the cabinetry. Guys, what's going on? Yeah. And we're working through this and we're like this for two months. Wow. Passover comes and I have barely any counter space, a sink, a, a dishwasher, an oven, and I have to keep running into the den into the living room to get the fluid out of the fridge. <laughs> it's wild how much of that stuff like it it derails your life. To not have a functional kitchen, right? That's so crazy. And everybody's living at home. Yeah. Because nobody's going to school. You know, it's not like we could just walk into the kitchen at any time and get a snack. <laughs> wow. So, but we, I, I, I called up the contract that the guy we buy the cabinets from, he goes, I have nobody to work. I have the things here, but I, I have nobody to help me. I said, I'm getting in my car. I'll wear a mask. I'll wear gloves. I'll help you fix up and fill up your truck. I'll help you unload it and offload it at my house. I need these things. (laughs) And I called the contractor. I said, put on two masks. I don't care. Do whatever you need to do. Please come and finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got it done. Oh, man. You need that. Especially, you know, when the kitchen is like the heart center of the home, right? Like you hearing your love for cooking is like such an integral part of who you are, you know, like. Uh, I could see that being like, hey, we must fix this, if, especially if we're all stuck inside for years, you know? Right. <laughs> we got through it. Got through it. So would you, is cooking, you know, like one of those daily things that helps you like show up in the right mindset, like in a creative place or something like that? Like, what does cooking do for you? Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Because the funny thing is how I even started to cook in the first place. Okay. Yeah. So I was married for 25 years. Officially, I was married for 25 years by the time we got through the divorce and everything like that. All right. And my wife was an unbelievable cook, not a good cook, a fantastic wow. cook. And my mother and my sisters are fantastic cooks. Right. And I wasn't allowed in the kitchen because I was a slow. <laughs> yeah. I knew how to make eggs. I knew how to make pasta and stuff like that. But, you know, I'd leave, I'd leave it like a, a hurricane. 
you know, yeah. just came through. But here I am, I'm married, I- I'm divorced. I moved back to New York to be near my sisters who live in New York in the wintertime, okay, and my mother, so that they could be my support while I'm going through this divorce. And my children are living in New Jersey with their mother, but they're coming to me every other weekend for, for you know, you know, visiting dad, be with dad. Uh, and they and every Friday night, which is a big night in the Jewish home, we would go to my grand, my mother, one of my sisters, for Friday night dinner. And my kids said to me, Dad, you know, we love going to grandma. We love going to the aunts, but we don't want to do it every time. And I said, we want to stay home once in a while. So I said, okay, if you let me learn how to cook and you're patient with me, then we'll start doing that. Hey. And I tell them, tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I'll get recipes from grandma. I'll yep. get my mommy will give me some recipes. I'll look at the coach. There's a community cookbook. I'll learn. And that's what I did. So what happened to me is it became my outlook, out, um, my way of, of getting through and adapting to what was going on in my life and saying, okay, I've got to change the way I do things. And I'll never forget, a few months into it, I invited one of my closest friends and his wife to my to dinner. And she walks into the kitchen thinking it was going to be like a, a torna- tornado or a hurricane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was perfectly clean because I learned, clean as you go. Yeah. But I loved the act of the, the getting in there, reading the recipes, learning, doing, yeah. stuffing the potato, the, the, the whatever it had to be do, doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I think the, uh, yeah, Bor, again, like out of this, this story of like, okay, I, I just got to figure out how to do this, show up for my kids, you know, and, and embrace the reality of like a new phase of your life. Right. And exactly. And to do it with like, with delight and creativity. And I, I'm just going to go learn, you know, and that seems like very, and wonderment. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, I did a Thanksgiving. I'm like, okay, how to slice a pineapple on Google. Well, here's a video. How to do this. I know, seriously. And video. <laughs> you can find it all out yeah. on Google. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, and I also love that yours is a story of like learning to cook a little bit later. It's not like you were like born and raised in your kitchen, always doing it or something like that. And I think that's such a valuable story for people to hear because I know right. I didn't start cooking until I was probably, you know, 26 or something like that. And, right. um, and so, but I'm now it's like one of the joys of my life is actually like <laughs> cooking a great meal and hosting people and all of that. Yeah. So. yeah and so much of joy that I turned around six months ago and now I do coaching videos with cut with cooking. <laughs> Tell me about that. Like what, what's the interplay between cooking and coaching? Tell, I'm, I'm so fascinated with that. Right. So I come up with a subject that I want to talk about. And I go, okay, great. Now let, let me find something that I could cook and talk about and intertwine the two. So I set up my, literally set up my, my, uh, tripod, put my phone on it and just look in and start talking. And I say, today I'm going to make this and blah, blah, blah. And I get into it. And then I come up with a subject that I think is important to discuss. And I talk about both at the same time. That's great. I've never heard of anybody doing that. It's so like this combination of, uh, you know, the process from start to finish 
of something that could also represent this uh this like life transformation or something that you're also trying to explain that is so cool right i think one of the first episodes i did the first episode was talking about how i became my own julia child you know like i i was channeling julia child through me yeah and how i got there with like some of the story i told you i love it i love it and just kind of like making that option available for everybody that you could be right. your own exactly. too yeah. yeah exactly i love it um great so um this has been a fun conversation already now i want to ask just maybe like one final set of questions which has to do with your you know your kind of like possessions the things that you keep in your home what, okay. if any, are your like prized possessions that like maybe perhaps because you use them often or because they're given a special place in your home? What are some of your prized possessions, Martin? Okay. So one of my prized possessions is, so I got married. I moved into my wife's house because she owned this house for a long time. I moved back to Brooklyn. I didn't own my house. I was actually living in the home that I grew up in. My mom had got married after my dad died, moved into his house. So there was no... There was no permanency there. Mm-hmm. She had a permanent house and I moved in and I took over the basement as my office. I'm in the basement right now. And if I turn the camera around, you'll see a treadmill. You'll see weights, weights, you know, uh, free weights and a rubber floor and a TV because I'll work out down here in my house. So one of my prized possessions is my gym down here, cool. which is kind of like my sanctuary for working out. That's great. And so convenient to have it just downstairs. Like, uh, right. And this is the combination of where like a lot of your, uh, I don't know, your, your personal life, like your kind of solo life might work out. I might watch TV, might, you know, get work done at this desk. uh, Exactly. Exactly. But then I also have a couple of other things that are important, that mean something to me. Yeah. So one of the things we have is a holiday called Purim, a Jewish holiday which is based on, for those who don't know or never heard of, the book of Esther, okay? And Esther was this woman over a 1,000 years ago. No, over 2,000 years ago, okay? And um, she was living with her uncle, his name is Mordechai, in Persia, in what's, you know, was now, you know, Persia. And um, there started to be a bit of uh, anti-Semitism going on, and there was this man, well, because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, wanted to destroy all the Jews. Wow. And this woman, Esther, or the, fa- the uncle saw what was going on before that. And the king had decided he didn't like his, new- his wife. He wanted a new wife. And he went about going out and having uh, a contest to see who would become his new wife. He convinced his niece to do it. She became the wife. She became Queen Esther. Okay. And when this man decided to destroy the nation, called Purim, because Hebrew is the word for a lottery. He pulled the lottery to see what day they would die. Whoa. What day the rest of the, the people could go and kill the Jews. And so this happens. And now he tells this, his niece, you've got to go and save the world. You've got to save the Jews. Whoa. She's like, I can't do it. He goes, well, if you don't do it, somebody's going to do it. And you're in the place to do it. So she fasts for three days. She Finally says, tells the king, I want to have a banquet with you and with this other man. And they come for dinner and she doesn't say anything that first night. Comes back again, says, I want to have another dinner with you. And her going to see the king without being uh, 
invited, she could have a head cut off. Comes, he goes, I, she says, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. He goes, I only want you to save my people. There's a man who wants to kill my people. Who is it? It's him. And the story goes, and she saves them. Wow. So on the holiday of Purim, we read this story, and it's called the Megillah Esther. So I have a scroll of that story that I had created. I had an artist create for me with wow. pictures going through it with the Hebrew writing of the story. Wow. So that's one of my possessions that's, that I love. That's, I mean, for one thing, an amazing story. And also amazing that you represented it, you know, got an artist to like capture it for you. Right. What What does that story represent to you? Why do you think it connects so much with you? Uh, I think it connects with me because, unfortunately, we may get a little political here, and I'm sorry if I do, but the Jews have always been persecuted. Always. You know, we could go back through thousands of years of persecution, the Crusades, the pogroms in Russia, the Holocaust, and many other times, and they always seem to be the only nation that's still around. Okay? Even today. You cannot find any other nation that had that could go back 5,000 years. The Babylonian, the Romans, all of them are gone. The Jews are still there. And and being a Jew, and if you've never met somebody who's also a Jew, you already have a connection because you're both Jewish. Yeah. Right? So seeing that and then watching Israel over the last 75 years grow in the face of always people wanting to destroy them and me being so passionate about my Judaism and passionate about my love for, for the world and love for everything, that story encompasses what we go through on a daily basis. Wow. Wow. So it is a, a story that represents your cultural, religious, you know, heritage, your, your identity in that. And also a story of what does it take to, to keep facing adversity and, um, and stick together and continue to yeah. find a way through it all. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, I, I love it. And it sounds like the perfect inspiration for a life coach, actually, to, because you, I know you're helping <laughs> people you. who are facing challenges in their life and, you know, and, right. and now you get to, uh, you know, draw from that story as inspiration. I love it. Well, uh, Martin, this has been a wonderful interview and thank you so much you. for generously giving me your time and your stories that i yeah i just cherish this conversation thank you so much thank uh, you so much with um yeah I, I would love to ask the just finally like what are the sort of things that you're working on right now and how could people get in touch with you if they want to be connected okay great so uh, recently i released my book it's called warrior to warrior because that's who i was i was a warrior and i've become a warrior and to me, a warrior is somebody who's gone through adversity and come out the other side stronger. So seven steps to uncover the warrior within and live incredibly full every day, life, L-I-F-E. So I have that book and along with it, a card deck, which is kind of like a, a supplement to the book. It's the principles of the book that you can carry around with you in your pocket <laughs> and, and have it there. So those are the things I'm working on. Those are the things that have come out recently. I'm very excited about it. You can go to Amazon, but you could also go to connectwithmartin.com and there you can get some free gifts and you could learn more about what I do and you can make an appointment with me. 
And if you go there, you could also, you know, or you could just go straight to YouTube and put in Martin Salama and you can watch some of my coaching and cooking videos. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Coaching and cooking. I mean, you've got like a big shout out during this time. So I love it. And congratulations on, on the book. And I hope Thank that you. if anybody is listening to this and they're like, gosh, I just need to be in touch with Martin, please check him out. I will, I will take all of this information and put it also onto a blog post in the show notes. So you just click that blog post. You'll get to read uh, a little bit about Martin and, uh, you know, what he's up to and links to these different things. And uh, connectwithmartin.com. Was that the website? That's it. And go Look how connect. easy it is. Yeah. Go, go yeah. check him out there. Uh, this has been an episode of Home Life for Extraordinary Impact. And uh, you know, this is part of a larger mission in of ex exploring home and getting research-backed insights on the way different people, every, experts and everyday people, live their life at home so that they can have a life of personal growth, relational connection, and making their greatest impact in the world. Uh, me and my wife, uh, Lindsay, are on a mission to help 100 million people transform their quality of life at home. It's an audacious goal, and that's what we're after. And uh, if you are into this and you want to keep following along, please subscribe to this episode and also follow along the newsletter at homelifedesignlab.com. Homelifedesignlab.com. There's a link in the show notes there. And uh, and if you especially like it, if you're just like, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for, I urge you to become a premium subscriber to the newsletter and the podcast, and that will get you even more extra perks that uh, will help inspire you to take action in your life to transform your quality of life at home. So thank you very much, everybody who's been listening. And thank you again, Martin, for being an incredible guest. Thank you so much, Matt. Have a great day. Yes. Until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to Home Life for Extraordinary Impact. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. Please take a moment to rate it, like it, and subscribe wherever you have listened or watched. If you really loved it, check the link in the show notes to become a premium subscriber to support the ongoing work of this project and to unlock some exclusive premium episodes. Home Life for Extraordinary Impact is a project of Home Life Design Lab. Find out more at homelifedesignlab.com where you can sign up for the newsletter and follow along on Instagram and TikTok. Thanks.